Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brunjic, and today I'm joined with Dr. Mark Blumenstein, where we're going to be getting cross-linked today on The OI Show. Hey, Mark, thank you for being on the show today. Um, listen, always love getting a chance to just connect and catch up with you. Uh, give, give everybody in the audience here a little bit of a background of, on yourself, um, the type of practice setting that you're in, the type of patients that you see. All right. Hey, Mila. Yeah. So I, uh, this is not where I practice, obviously, um, <laughs> sitting in a car, but um, I am here in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I feel bad when I see the weather for especially you guys over <laughs> over on the East Coast or the Midwest. Um, I've been in uh, Scottsdale for, gosh, about 25 years. Uh, most of what I've done has been in and around cataract, refractive surgery, um, really just kind of stabilizing uh, the cornea, getting patients ready for their, their later later in life years, I guess you could say. Um, I do dabble a little bit in primary care, but um, it's kind of exciting times right now because we have a lot of new opportunities for patients to kind of see without glasses or contacts, but we also yeah. now have opportunities to help patients who have had, you know, who've been told they're not candidates for anything um, to at least, you know, stabilize the quality of their vision. Yeah, Mark, it's it, your career. You, you've kind of spanned it all and you've seen it all. I mean, I remember when PRK and LASIK were first introduced to the profession and everybody thought we wouldn't need optometry anymore. I mean, I, I, I think everybody thought optometry was going to be this extinct profession. Um, for those of us that have embraced these patients, it actually made us even, even busier. But I mean, that has gone through a massive evolution over the last 25 years. Tell us like one or two of the biggest things that you've seen in refractive corneal technology, just the change and, and what, what we're getting now from outcomes versus what we got 5, 10, 15 years ago. So to, to your point, Mila, I mean, you're dead on. I mean, we did, I, I actually joined a practice here where we actually had a black box laser in 1995. Some of your listeners or viewers are like 95. Okay, I was like in elementary school or high school <laughs> and we know who you are. We don't care. But literally, to the, in 1995, we were doing this broad diameter, single laser. We had the glare, the halos. In 97, when it got, first got approved by uh, the FDA, it was still a broad beam-based laser. What really kind of turned the corner and revolutionized this procedure is that, that small spot variable uh, laser procedure. And literally, you know, you take a big chunk of the cornea and then you just make these tiny little spots. What then over the last, I'd probably say decade is wavefront technology combined with using like a, a um, femtosecond laser to make the flap. Right now, Mila, I would tell you that LASIK is probably the safest, most efficacious treatment you can do for patients. Here's the, and here's, here's the rub if they're a candidate. And I think, you know, it's funny you had mentioned before about how, you know, ODs thought, oh my God, you know, I don't want to refer patients on there. No, our patients are never going to be without need of an optometrist. And I think, you know, even with the new technology that's coming out, it's not for everybody. They're still going to have to have comprehensive eye exams. They're still going to have to need other devices. But right now, currently, LASIK surgery for a, a excellent candidate and they know who they are because they'll find it, um, doing phenomenal. I think aside from that, 
you know, we, we have a lot of other lens-based procedures, but on the cornea right now, this is legit. There is, there is another procedure called SMILE, which is a small lenticular extraction. And I, I feel that that's a really interesting, newer way of just making a very tiny incision. You pull out this, yeah. Um, yeah. this uh, lenticle, if you will, but yeah. it's, it's not as broad, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's good times, man. Good times. So, so you, you hit on a lot of points there, Mark. I, I always love hearing you talk about the surgical options, but you, know, you talked about appropriate candidates, and there are patients that aren't appropriate candidates. And what I've found even working with the refractive surgeons here locally is that, um, and even in our practices, we, we continue to strive to incorporate technologies that will thwart any of the bad outcomes. And one of the things that we want to make sure we're avoiding are those individuals who are either at risk or have mild, moderate, or severe keratoconus that are walking in thinking, yeah, I want to get LASIK surgery. I want to rid myself of my glasses and or contact lenses. And they may not necessarily be traditional refractive surgery candidates, but we, we have treatment for keratoconus now beyond just refractively caring for them with specialty lenses. And that's corneal cross-linking, Mark. And tell us um, a little bit about your involvement with that procedure when you guys started doing it and uh, really some of the things that we could expect when our patients are going for corneal cross-linking. Yeah, you, you nailed it. I mean, we have the ability now to slow down the progression of this disease. I mean, this isn't necessarily going to improve somebody's vision. Maybe it could stop it from progressing. And interestingly enough, the vast majority of patients who even know they have keratoconus or early keratoconus are because they came in thinking that they wanted to get out of the glasses or contacts because they weren't doing as well. Um, the practice that I'm in right now, uh, I mean, the cr- cross-linking has been around for decades. Theo Seiler invented the process back in Dresden, Germany, literally by removing the epithelial tissue, you know, adding in some oxygen, putting some riboflavin in there, and then, you know, activating that oxygen to create these superoxides, which causes those crosslinks. I mean, in dentistry and, you know, pediatrics, uh, camel packs, you know, that we use jello, jello pudding, it's all crosslinking. And so for the last, uh, in our practice in 2010, I think, God, it's been about 12 years, we were involved in a clinical trial trying to do a epi-on procedure to infuse the cornea, you know, transversely through the epithelial tissue so that it heals faster, stabilizes faster. But I think what we're realizing is some of the formulations uh, of the um, the viscous, of the riboflavin that we need to use uh, don't really work as well through the epithelium. So removing the epithelium adds more oxygen, creates more crosslinks. Currently, there's only one FDA-approved procedure, and that's from Glaucos, and that's the iLink system, um, using their Fotrexa viscous solution. And we've been doing that currently in our practice for about three or four years. What's exciting, Mila, and this is for ODs, and this is where, again, I mean, if, if you're in your practice thinking, well, this is surgical, it's not, no, these patients, this is covered vastly um, uh, across the country for in insurances. And but the caveat to that is is that they have to demonstrate that there's been progression. So that that H18.623 progressive keratoconus diagnosis. And the way they have to do that is that to show progression. So if you're an OD and you see somebody who's got early signs of keratoconus, then start writing down 
you know, what their prescription is, what their K's are, see if there's any progression, you know, between inferior or superior, if there's any progression of astigmatism or more than a diopter and a half, I guess, of a sphere. Noting that makes it really you know, beneficial for us when we come in and we want to do surgery and it's covered by the insurances. Yeah. So Mark, let's, let's take a few steps back here because this, this is, this has changed. This has changed everything for the keratoconic patient. I think we right now are at a time and a place where the next generation of keratoconic patients we won't have to worry about the rate of corneal transplants that we're doing them at right now because we're hopefully going to influence the long-term effect on these corneas. And again, listen, I would love to fit mild to moderate cone patients as opposed to the more severe cones because those get just logistically difficult for a lot of reasons. So if we could stabilize those cones early, that's the best case scenario. What What is the minimum age that can be treated with corneal cross-linking right now, Mark? So during the, the clinical trials, the age was 21. However, there's a difference between, you know, what's on-label and what's off-label. So we actually, in our practice, are treating patients as young as 14. Uh, we, we just had a patient who was 14 years old. He had Votstria. He had 2,100 best corrected visual acuity already. Mm-hmm. So I think it really just depends on how aggressive the keratoconus is. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we, we, you and I had talked a little bit offline about, you know, diagnosing this condition. And, you know, interesting enough, when I talked about refractive surgery, back 20-something years ago, there was no topographers. We didn't have pentacams or orb scans. And so when those became vogue, and for those of us who've been practicing long enough to think, oh, you don't, you know, you have a topographer, ooh, you're bougie. I mean, <laughs> now if you don't have a topographer, it's like, why not? I yeah, mean, yeah, but another really. way that we're we're finding these patients is genetically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had talked before about the the Avagen technology, which is a a way of looking for these keratoconic markers early to be able to talk to your patients about what you know expectations are or what potential expectations are going to be for the, their corneas and their vision. I think, I think um, in eye care, just in general, we're getting better at catching conditions earlier. We're getting better at catching risk factors earlier. And environment is always a risk factor that we can control. We can educate patients. We can give them appropriate medications to get them to stop and keep their hands away from their eyes. It's remarkable to see these keratoconic patients and their hands are just always around their eyes. But we can't do anything about the genetic side of things. And it's, it, it is valuable to understand that information because that puts a patient at high risk or low risk. I, I talk about this all the time with patients where if you have a low genetic risk, you have to expose yourself to high levels of environmental risk to develop a disease. Vice versa is also true. If you have a high genetic risk, you may not necessarily have to expose yourself to as much environmental risk to express or develop the disease. So I, I think that gives us another caveat. I think, too, the algorithms on these um, modern topographers, OCTs, tomographers, I mean, you put all of that information together and, and we can just see this condition sooner, which is why the one in 2000 number, one in 2500 number for keratoconus or the prevalence of keratoconus is almost archaic at this point because of 
how much more frequently we're seeing it in particular with these suspects. And these really question mark um, areas of thinning, areas of posterior fluid, all these technologies that we have that are just helping us guide the identification sooner. And I, and I think too, Mark, to your point, I mean, you hit it right on the head. The sooner you catch it, the sooner you can start tracking it, and the better you can track change, the more likely these individuals are to be candidates for cross-linking, for ultimately stabilization. I mean, the earlier we catch them, the earlier we treat them, the better their future clinical outcomes are. You know, to, to that same point, Mila, you had asked me what's like the youngest we treat. The question also can be, what's the oldest you treat? Because if you see somebody who comes in with ectasia or who has form frost or even has untreated keratoconus, um, I think there's no time that wouldn't be beneficial to try to stabilize the cornea. Mm-hmm. So we, we see patients who've had RK surgery, and that's an off-label indication, but, you know, unstable corneas to try to, like, you know, clamp yeah. it down and yeah. make it better. But if I can, I mean, to me, what our profession, the, 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 the absolute, uh, I think, just... The, the, the most impressive thing that we can do for our patients is, is educate. And, you know, there's nothing that I think I love more than when a patient comes into the lane and I say, hey, look, you know, I want to tell you about something. And they may say something like, why didn't my last doctor tell me? Or better yet, oh, wow, thank you so much for sharing that with me. And sometimes it also means patients who aren't even, they may not be a candidate for a surgery, but just let them know, this is out there. This is why you're not a candidate or here's an option for you, an opportunity. And nowhere, nowhere is it better than when you're talking to patients who have, you know, irregular looking corneas or potential for, you know, ectatic corneas or keratoconus. So um, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to really help our patients. Well, Mark, listen, this has been an absolute blast. I, I really uh, appreciate you being on this episode. This was this was awesome. I think um, your perspective on refractive surgery, where we are, where we were and where we are today, and even too with corneal cross-linking, I mean, this is just really changing the game. And to think 20 years ago when I graduated optometry school, we'd be talking about stabilizing the cornea like this. This is just unbelievable. So Appreciate your time, Mark. Appreciate you being on here and sharing your expertise. Thanks for having me. I'm glad yeah. I could pull, pull off to the road and uh, have a chat. <laughs> and thank you all for joining us on this episode of the Optometric Insights Show. Uh-huh.